Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi, this is Roger Kimmel-Smith. This is another episode of our video podcast, When Humanists Attack. On this one, how do we democracy? First, what does democracy have to do with humanism? A lot. And you know, their relationship is a close one. The notion of democracy and the practice of democracy really seem like a cross-section of the whole panoply of humanist values as they're expressed in this graphic of the 10 commitments of humanism from the American Humanist Association, qualities like altruism, empathy, serving others, participation in community life, the principle of responsibility, the principle of peace and justice, the principle of critical thinking. All of these, they go right over the heart of the plate of what we think of as democracy. We all belong to something larger than ourselves. You don't need to believe in any uh, kind of divinity or divinities to accept that proposition. We all belong to something larger than ourselves. At the very least, we're all born into a family. You know, there's, and there's something wider than that to which we all belong, which we use with words like society. How does society happen? We make it happen and, and keep it strong every day with our behavior and with our institutions and our rules and our norms. An example came to mind on my walk today, traffic lights and stop signs. I'm grateful for them and that we uh, use them with some regularity and I can have some assurance that others think of them as valid in the way I do. We've, we've come to accept certain conventions of behavior as second nature and it's because they make sense, common sense, and they help everybody. We rely on these rules and on other people following them for our safety. In short, we call this the social contract. And it's a responsibility to one another. Now, having grown up in the United States of America, it seems to me that democracy is basically an extension of society. You know, it, it's a, an elaboration of the social contract, all of it in keeping with the ideas of humanism that I mentioned at the top. Instead of government derived from the divine right of kings, in other words, God, you know, we have government that gets its mandate from human beings, all of us together, we the people, human sovereignty. And the, the, this means we depend on one another to actually govern the nation, with each of us having a stake in the enterprise and each of us having that responsibility to one another. And the role for each of us in this scheme is called being a citizen. This, the idea is supposed to be that a citizen is a real office with real duties. You know, it's like being a soldier, except that it holds for all of us in peace as well as war, in sickness as well as in health. For example, if there's a pandemic, you wear a mask over your nose and mouth in public. This is just an example of the social contract. In a society that thinks of itself as a democracy, being a citizen is a precious thing. It's our piece on the game board of the society. 
It means we're players in the life of the nation on an equal plane with everybody else, at least in theory. But we know in practice not everyone finds it so self-evident that all humans are created equal. Yet we have progressed somewhat from the 18th century concept that citizenship and the franchise were available only to pale-skinned males who owned a certain amount of property. You know. In the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which was passed in 1868, it says for the first time, and I quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside, and that the state shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Of course, it must be noted, if, if only parenthetically, that that same text has also been used by corporations in the United States to derive the whole legal edifice of corporate personhood and their rights in perpetuity. But just look at this. In that same amendment, Section 3 of Amendment 14 to the U.S. Constitution, it says, no person shall be a senator or representative or hold any office under the United States who, having previously taken an oath, dot, 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 to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. We're recording this episode on the 14th of January, 2021, and we have just witnessed a very stark example of insurrection or rebellion against constitutional government in this country. And it seems to me we can't take our democracy so for granted anymore. It's now in a crisis that may very well deepen and may very well last far longer than a few days. And if it gets worse, it threatens to tear a great deal of our social contract to shreds. But if we can resolve this crisis, if we're capable of that, we're moved towards resolving it, it could ultimately strengthen the social and democratic fabric of the 20th century United States. And here to discuss these matters with me is one of the country's leading scholars of democracy, John Gastel. Hey, John. John hey. is a distinguished professor in the departments of communication, arts and sciences, and political science at Penn State University also the senior scholar at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, based on that campus in State College, PA. Performing to Penn, before coming to Penn State in 2011, he was a professor at U of Washington in Seattle. John's many books include Hope for Democracy, How Citizens Can Bring Reason Back into Politics, published in 2020, Oxford University Press. Also, Legislature by Lot, and books including By Popular Demand, <laughs> Democracy in Small Groups, The Jury and Democracy, 
the Deliberative Democracy Handbook. And John has also published his first two works of fiction in 2020. They are entitled Gray Matters and Dungeon Party, both put out in two novels in one year by the same publisher, Cosmic Egg Books of the UK. John, welcome to When Humanists Attack. Hey, thanks for the introduction. And it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Roger. I'm really enjoying your show. I'm delighted. Uh, so now I'm hoping you'll do some talk. But, uh, you know, as tempting as it is to dive right into like the current pickle that we're in, I really like to talk first about you and your story and how you've become who you are. You know, your whole CV, which I've actually studied, looks like one long exercise in really successful, constructive citizenship. I mean, isn't that the through line? I think there's something to that. Uh, a couple early influences on me, which are seemingly contradictory, is one, I was raised Quaker. So my parents would haul me off to Quaker meeting. And so there, right, you learn consensus and and sitting in silence and, and kind of a sort of engagement that is outside of politics. Uh, on the other hand... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Tell me about Quaker. You grew up in San Diego. Tell about the community there. Yeah, well, it, we met at the YWCA. We didn't have our own meeting house. It was a small meeting in, in our part of San Diego. Um, but, you know, it didn't really stick with me, I thought, when I was a kid. Once I was old enough to stay home and watch football games on Sunday, I... I pleaded to do that. I, I was actually betting on the games, uh, like nickels and dimes with friends. I mean, not very Quakerly, right? But the influence was there. And obviously, uh, it's not a coincidence I wound up at Swarthmore. And I did ultimately join the Religious Society of Friends and remained a member for quite a long time until humanism attacked me and I left. That strong it seems about the most humanist of the Christian denominations. Oh, absolutely. And when you read those list of principles, I mean, that really sounds like Quakerism in so many ways. And as you say, humanism and democracy are, are good friends. Uh, Quakerism has kind of a radical democracy in it, which was very appealing to me. I, I'm sure many of your listeners know that the Quakers were the first religious organization in the United States to stand up against slavery as an entire religious institution. What very few of your listeners know is the decision-making process that required was literally, literally full unanimity across every single Quaker meeting house in the United States. Holy because there's no, there's no centralized authority. And so ah. any single Quaker who wished to stand in opposition to that, and many did for some time, um, they could, they could effectively block that. And so it's an incredible story of kind of, uh, now they, they bridle a little bit when you say that's radical democracy, because they're like, no, no, it's a spiritual practice. There's that of God and everyone, and we all listen for that soft, still voice. Sure, sure, sure. But you do kind of vote, people. Um, and it is kind of radically democratic. So that was a big influence on me. It's true. It seems very deliberative. And, and the whole sort of uh, culture of the silent meeting for worship Seems like, you know, either it can be conducive to some kind of twisted power game kind of uses or true deliberation that includes the spirit. One of my favorite quotes from a book on Quaker process was from Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, where the interviewer was asking, well, what do you do if you can't reach consensus? You know, you're near, but there's one or two holdouts. Uh, how can you resolve that? And the answer was, well, sometimes you have to wait for a couple good Quaker funerals. 
Meaning the solution <laughs> is not available until they die. Um, but the, oh, I see. But the, yeah, basically we're going to have to just wait this one out. My dad ran for Congress in 76. My mom later ran in 92, both unsuccessfully. But even before that, our family dinner table, I swear Roger Ailes must have had a camera in the house because I, I think we were kind of a prototype for the the most volatile kind of talk format. Um, we had horrible arguments and debates in the house, not very <laughs> Quakerly in so many ways. And I, I in high school, I got pulled out of a, a world a geography class once and told, you should be on the debate team. We're, we're going to have you introduce you to a couple couple seniors and they're going to lure you in and then I, I did debate all through high school and college and it was a huge influence on me didn't you bring home some sort of trophy there was you know regionals and the states and you went to the world a few feet behind me hiding in the closet is a giant <laughs> cup which is the world parliamentary debate champion uh trophy now now my debate team did not prevail but i got the top speaker points because I, I was being I, voted on by my peers. I mean, they were judging me. So it felt like kind of a lifetime achievement award for being just a, a nice guy who was fun to debate. And so in that final tournament, they were judging me and thought, yeah, no, you did really well. And um, I, mm. I always like to be humble about it. And I say, well, best speaker in the English speaking world. Uh, so I got a big piece of hardware still. Your father ran for Congress and your mother ran for Congress in different decades. And they eras, had terrible really. arguments. I'm not quite clear what you mean by terrible arguments, but somehow it all seems to connect with you gaining this incredible capacity for debate. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I have a consensus tradition being infused into me and a very adversarial one. Um, <laughs> just strong disagreement. And when they weren't disagreements between mom and dad, I mean, my oldest brother is quite uh, quite an orator and has very strong opinions. Uh, but as much as he might push my buttons and make me crazy, um, he would also say things that would challenge people but were sometimes spot on. Uh, he had a very different life uh, from me and, um, and sometimes understands personalities that I don't understand. So when Donald Trump was running for president, for example, he said this and, and he shouted, I'll spare your mic the, the pain, but he shouted, he said, he said, Donald Trump, if Donald Trump is elected president, the first hundred days, forget about it. There's only going to be one, one thing, one thing on his agenda. His whole agenda is one thing. It's one word. Attention. <laughs> attention. That's his whole presidency. That's all it's going to be. Attention. Right. He would say things like that in any context, very absolute, right? And we would get into a big argument. But you have to admit, at the end of the day, if he's throwing down gems like that, you, you got to learn how to how to listen right? As well as argue your side, because you might be wrong. This is your brother you're talking about. Yeah, my oldest brother. I mean, he he finished high school with a GED long after high school should have been over. Um, and yet when I published my first article, I remember sitting in the back of the family car. Uh, Mom was going to drive us somewhere. Garth was in the front. And I said, hey, you know what? I just found out that I published my first article. It's, you know, this thing on pronouns and so on. And Garth turned around without missing a beat. And he, he again, almost shouts at me. He says, Good for you. Don't you ever publish anything just to publish something. That's stupid. Does it matter? Does what you wrote matter? And I said, yeah, I think it kind of does. It's like, okay, well, that's all you should be doing. Right? He's saying this to a future tenure track professor who's going to be very tempted to just publish things for the sake of, you know, gosh. Mm -hmm. So that kind of aggressive 
adversarial kind of input, I, it, in the mm -hmm. end, didn't scare me, right? So I can live in both worlds. I can I can advocate for a very rational, very empathic, right? Kind of in, intense deliberation, and I, I, you know, I used to run campaigns too. I, I wound up running my mom's campaign in the in the last three months, so I can be very adversarial too. And I think that mix has given me a unique perspective because I am at once both very idealistic. Right, the book is Hope for Democracy this year, and at the same time, I'm very pragmatic, very realistic about you know what do we have to do to restructure, as you said, our institutions and norms to promote the kind of deliberation I want because it's not just going to come rolling off the hills. It seems clear in your books and in your research, you've done really detailed work about specific initiatives that all seem to have this uh, the through line of promoting. Uh, deliberation on policy issues. One of the institutions I studied, for instance, is the jury. Now, earlier when you were talking about citizenship and the the sort of the responsibilities we have as citizens, uh, a federal judge once pointed out that I think there are only six constitutionally specified offices. This is sort of surprising in the Constitution. Things like the president, vice president, and so on. Two of those are two types of juror. Uh huh. That is one third of all the constitutionally designated offices are reserved for people who are unelected. It's kind of remarkable when you think about that. But the, the reason I studied the jury then for 10 years was I thought, wow, this is a, a deliberative institution that already exists. So often I'm writing about things that I think should exist, but this thing already exists. It's completely taken for granted. We're not appreciating its potential impact on democracy. And so what I focused on was how being a juror can actually be transformative. And we found pretty strong evidence that the experience of deliberating on a jury makes you a more reliable voter. That is, you become more consistent in showing up at elections and through surveys, we found some other things. But the fun thing about the voting behavior and the jury behavior study was there was no survey data involved. It was merging official jury records, which were public record with official voting records and literally being able to trace what was your voting history before you got called for jury duty and then after. And even just looking at those people who were seated on a jury, because there's lots of reasons you do or don't get seated on a jury. Once you're seated on a jury, a natural experiment occurs, which is some of you, even though you're du duly sworn jurors, won't get to deliberate. There'll be a mistrial uh, or any number of things will, will cause you. And, and you don't become a better voter. It's those jurors who get to deliberate and importantly, whether or not they reach a verdict. We thought it was gonna require you know, winning the game, right? If you reach a verdict, you'll be kind of satisfied and you'll be more engaged, <laughs> but no, it's the deliberation itself. It's playing the game that makes you appreciate your responsibilities in other realms as a citizen. And the reason we focused on the jury was because it was there. It was a deliberative institution we'd already created, but taken for granted. That's remember how you started. You said, we take democracy for granted too much. Well, we do that in big ways and we also do it in small ways. Oh, and I imagine that in Athens, in Rome, these places we take as the model, the juror experience was you know, far more widespread as, as the citizen body was smaller. Well, that's right. Exactly. More widespread, but also more selective, right? Uh, in that, you know, obviously, who wasn't a citizen? 
A funny thing, though, about our research on the American jury and its civic impact is uh, there's been some uptake in the United States, some interest, but the real interest has been overseas, as they said in Spinal Tap. I'm huge in Japan. Um, so I got the chance to go to Japan and Argentina because they didn't have jury systems and they wanted to have them. And one of the justifications for it was, well, the jury will probably make our citizens more engaged. And here I was sitting right on the data showing, actually, that's not just Tocqueville's supposition. It turns out it's actually true to a degree. Argentina in particular has had me come out now three times and just give talks to judges and attorneys and, and legislators. Uh, because the funny thing is the jury was in their constitution, but it said, well, when Congress gets around to implementing it, and they never did. Argentina has a bit of a spotty history on democracy. So here it was a group of law students and a couple of professors who kind of barnstormed the country for years and wound up getting the jury implemented. Imagine this one state at a time. And they would fly in these people from the United States. Mm. In fact, even the, the US government actually paid to bring me out once. Um, and so it was wow. a real neat example of how even looking closely at our democracy and understanding it better, even if people in the US still don't quite get it and they still take the jury for granted, potentially it can have a bigger impact, which makes it all the more tragic that we're tarnishing the reputation of our own democracy now, because it in some ways makes it harder to export some of the best ideas and insights from this country, because frankly, we've lost a lot of credibility in the last few days. Yes, and one wonders you know, whether we're going to develop the humility, another of the humanist values in order to sort of import or re-import these notions to, you know, to recognize that there are lessons to be taken and to take them. I think maybe we should know a little more about your mother and your father. You know, those these factoids that they became candidates. Both academics, very much so. And my dad was a geologist, a geology professor, and uh, studied Baja California. My mom was in English and writing and, and music, wound up teaching violin. Um, so I certainly was one of those kids raised in a household where there's a high expectation for education. And it wasn't until I was actually writing my dissertation, I, I can remember having this experience sitting at my old little computer, well, it wasn't so little back then, looking out the window of a basement uh, little apartment and thinking, why am I getting a PhD? <laughs> like, whose idea was this? It felt like, I mean, I just kind of sat with it for a little bit and was like, I think my parents implanted in me an expectation about this degree that is honestly about the equivalent of graduating high school. That is, of course, Ooh. I was getting a PhD. That's what one does, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, statistically, I don't think it is what one does. But here I am halfway <laughs> into a dissertation. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with a PhD, but it just, it seemed like Thanos inevitable. Maybe it was my, my almost discomfort with the PhD that set me up for an odd career because I didn't mm -hmm. apply for any academic jobs once I got my PhD. I've asked my dissertation advisor about this years later. Oh, really? You weren't, oh. you weren't going straight ahead? No, okay. I thought academia was nutso. I mean, I had encountered some serious psychological dysfunction in my graduate program. And I thought, I'm going to run screaming from academic departments. I have no interest in this at all. Um, this, was, you I, went, this was in Madison? Yeah. And I wound up moving to Albuquerque because an old high school friend was there. And the job I found at a research institute might look like a perfect fit for me. I found it in a phone book. 
after having spent weeks trying to network to find, I wanted to be a mediator. That's what I wanted to do. Really? But, yeah. But mediators, it turns out, aren't, they aren't jobs. Um, so there, mm. you know, it's not really something you can become um, if you have mm. no other source of income. Uh, so I found this thing called the Institute for Public Policy in a, in a public phone book in the public library in Madison, Wisconsin. They had an Albuquerque phone book, you know, pre-internet, right? And uh, I just cold called them and uh, I got to their director and he said, well, we were thinking we needed to hire someone before too long. Um, you know, are you going to come out for a visit? And I did. And, and they liked me. And, uh, and then about four months later, they called me from a, a hotel in Vegas and they were like, oh, do you still want that job? Because we were th talking about you today. And I was like, yeah, I want that job. And so that's what I did for three years. And then I got an academic job. So wait a minute, what year was this? So 94, I left okay. Madison, drove down to Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I worked at this research institute for three years. And I see, you know, then I, what, I wound up. What did they think you were to do? And what did you get done? They just had me write reports. I mean, analyze data, write reports, analyze data, write reports. And I wrote a few articles on the side, but mostly I was just a, a machine of producing research output uh, for the director and the institute. And it was mostly super interesting, mostly, um, but uh, it wasn't bad preparation for then becoming a professor because it kind of honed my presentational skills, my ability to present data for a public audience, for legislatures and so on. Um, it was part of the University of New Mexico, but it wasn't a conventional sort of professor type job. It was really just a research manager or something was the name I came up with. And I didn't want to leave Albuquerque, but fortunately, everyone around me said, are you nuts? You know, these people are calling you up and asking you to apply for a job and um, you should apply and you should go get that job. And there you are. That's the University of Washington. The fact is they'd done two failed searches. They had not been able to hire someone who they wanted and I kind of did what they wanted and they found me because of some stuff I published and called my advisor and he said, well, he's in Albuquerque. I can't tell you what to do with him, but you know, maybe he'll want the job, go, just try him. Uh, on paper, it looks like you have progressed through what I think of as the cut and dried steps uh, you know, to progress in an academic career. But you're telling me that this, that, you know, it certainly didn't happen that way, or did you, or you weren't even thinking of, of an academic, I mean, tell me about uh, leaving, leaving the Swarthmore, and then how that, when, uh, yeah. how it got yeah. to graduate school. No, I'm you with know. you, Roger. The reason I went to graduate school in communication was a girlfriend. Uh, Leah Haravon uh, and I had taken a course and it wasn't even an official course in like human relations or something and she asked the person who ran it what's your degree in and she had a master's degree in communication so Leah was going to do that well she didn't do that um, but in the meantime I thought we were so I applied to grad school Wisconsin looked like a really good program I didn't understand what it was at all in fact the program I was going to study there in the special international negotiation program literally Roger I walked into the building as a new graduate student all bright-eyed and she tailed to see my professor who ran that program walking out of his office carrying a cardboard box. Not because he'd been fired. No one had told me the program was canceled. So I went to a graduate program to study something that didn't exist. Even the graduate student who was a, his parents were famous negotiators. It was a neat connection we had. Uh, he, he was leaving. He didn't, nobody told me. I mean, so uh, how hmm. random is that, right? And then, of course, I go to Albuquerque because of an old friend uh, who I thought, oh, it'll be fun to hang out with Todd. You know, it'll be some warmer weather, right? You can imagine my Swarthmore professors were beside themselves. Like, 
what is it going to take to give this guy some sense of direction, right? But <laughs> as you say, when you look at it on paper, it sure does seem like it makes a lot of sense. If I have my chronology right, you you were uh, working on and then you did publish the small group democracy book during those years of the 90s. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm interested to know how you came back around to it and published a second edition of it. And so what is still of strong and lasting value in it? Sure. So Democracy in Small Groups was my first book. And I was, again, fortunate because I was studying a, a housing co-op in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, or excuse me, a food co-op. I lived in a housing co-op. And they agreed to be part of an intensive ethnographic study only if I would seek publication. So they didn't want to be part of somebody's master's thesis stuffed in the library. So that kind of gave me this weird external motivation to try publishing a book as a graduate student, which I did. Uh, but otherwise, that would have looked ridiculously presumptuous, um, which it probably still did. I, I really did focus on what does democracy mean at the level of a small group? What would it mean to be equal at that small face-to-face -face level? Uh, but the book ended talking about, well, okay, but how would a small group potentially fit into larger democratic systems, things like a jury? So when I published that, the first edition of the book, it was really about the small group and that other stuff was just kind of imagining, you know, how we could transform democracy to, to have more deliberation in it. By the time I, the copyright reverted to me from the publisher and I had the chance to publish a second edition, which is almost basically for free, I did that. And the biggest changes to the book are in the last chapters because the world had changed so much because some of these ideas that people were kicking the tires on back then actually got implemented. There are all sorts of democratic innovations that harness the power of small deliberative groups. And that's what Hope for Democracy is about, is about a particular election reform in Oregon. And the book by popular demand from 2000 was a book that advocated that particular reform. So it all does, as you say, there is a through line that kind of weaves all this together. And it's, you know, looking back on an academic career, I just am so fortunate to have had the chance to kind of dream, right, study the world, see some of these dreams get put in place, and then study them again to see if they worked, right? That's incredibly gratifying. Yeah, it is remarkable. I'd like to hear more about, uh, uh, I guess, the derivation of the, the program in Oregon. Well, let's do that. So in by popular demand, you see me blending the experience as a campaign manager with my deliberative aspirations in that you're not going to get the public to deliberate in a profound sense. But voters mm -hmm. do respond to signals and little cues that can guide them. And so my suggestion was, why don't you have small deliberative bodies study candidates, ballot measures, and then pass along kind of quick judgments, if you will, along with a more detailed rationale. Why is this candidate or this ballot measure good or bad? Oregon then comes along, uh, a couple grad students read that book and say, well, why don't we make that the law in Oregon? Why don't we have a deliberative panel evaluate ballot measures and then write a voting guide essentially that goes out in the official voters pamphlet? And that's literally what these presumptuous graduate students pulled off. They lobbied the legislature and the legislature made it law in 2010. And it really was uh, essentially plucked from your, your book or, or research that you were doing with colleagues? 
in parallel with a, a, a democratic theorist outside of the academy in Minnesota, Ned Crosby. He was mm -hmm. writing and thinking along similar lines. He wound up supporting these two graduate students to give them the chance to be really political reformers. Um, and then they oversaw the program for its first few years. One of them stuck with it for almost a decade. So now we have years of data in Oregon on this election reform and how it actually works. And the bottom line is not only is the deliberation good on this citizens initiative review process, the actual 20 to 24 citizens do a great job of analyzing these ballot measures, but fortunately voters also read the statement and are influenced by it. So the people of Oregon have been voting on ballot measures with a stronger information base than really anyone else because they implemented this election reform. It's remarkable. I mean, what mechanism did they use to to get it started? Well, they did something very clever, because if you if you think back on your timeline, 2010 was a recession. Right. So how do you get a legislature to implement a, a new anything? Right. They were cutting back. Well, the bargain they made was, OK, we'll put a sunset clause on it. So you pass this law. It gets tried once and then you decide whether you want it for real. Second, mm. we'll pay with it. We'll, we'll just use philanthropy to pay for it. So the state government won't be out a dime other than the marginal cost of adding one more piece of newsprint to the voters pamphlet um, and any administrative cost of the Secretary of State's office looking at it and typesetting it and that kind of thing. Um, so that was the bargain. And fortunately, I got funding from the National Science Foundation to study that 2010 pilot um, and then got to testify before the legislature. And it's a, it's a great example of kind of social science and democracy working really well together. One of the legislators in Oregon, after we had testified, he said, so, so we passed a law and then this science foundation paid you to study it and see if it actually did what it was supposed to. And now mm -hmm. we know that it worked. Mm -hmm. And he looks at his colleagues and is like, why don't we do this for all of the stuff we do? <laughs> yeah, like we're done here. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry, Don't the National you. Science Foundation isn't going to fund all that. But yeah, have you thought about having a little R&D budget? Um, but it was an amazing moment. I mean, it really was evidence-based policymaking. And it was it was an incredible honor. With There with my doctoral student, Catherine Noblock, who's the co-author of the book. I mean, imagine being a grad student and testifying in front of the legislature about your doctoral dissertation, right? How fun is that? This is really literally a career making initiative. Well, she's a tenured uh, professor now, so there yeah. you go. What is translatable from that? What are you what are you arguing in Hope for Democracy? Well, the bigger argument is that this is actually just one example of democratic innovation. There are so many ways we can tweak our institutions to bring out our better selves, to encourage empathy, to you know push forward more bold legislation. Uh, and as you said uh, a little while ago, there's lots of examples internationally that we should be humbly learning from. Uh, the Irish Constitutional Convention and Citizen Assembly is another deliberative body, much larger, closer on the order of uh, one to 200 people. And that deliberative process caused changes in Ireland, not directly, but indirectly. So for instance, Ireland has voted by referendum on abortion, on blasphemy. Well, these things came right out of this deliberative process. And what it did is it, it kind of created a pathway for legislative action that the legislators themselves weren't so comfortable with. But you know mm -hmm. what, if a deliberative body says this is what the people have to vote on, sure, that's fine. Um, let's put it to the vote. But but okay. that was a clever way of using a, a kind of a large small group, right, maybe 150 people to influence an electoral process that includes everyone. 
And that you see the parallel to Oregon. The difference is in Oregon, that small deliberative body is evaluating a question that is already coming to the ballot. But that's just a question of where you implement this little deliberative moment, right? Is it putting mm. something on the agenda? Is it crafting? In British Columbia, Canada, they actually drafted a new election law. Or in Oregon, they come in after a law has been proposed and evaluate it. There's so many different things, Roger. So Hope for Democracy is about all these different ways you can intervene in democracy to infuse deliberation, sometimes from a small group. Mm. All right. So... So what is it about deliberation? Let me sprinkle this question with the misinformation, disinformation, uh, epistemic crisis that we appear to be in these days. We'll take two different examples from Oregon. One is on the deliberative panel itself that is evaluating the law. They're meeting people who are pro and con. They're meeting with some experts. They have about four days to write a one-page statement for all the voters. So that's one question is, how do they deliberate? And the answer is, they really get into the weeds, right? Mm -hmm. When we think about people being motivated ideologically and, you know, oh, I, I just believe in, you know, this environmental action, or I believe in, in tough criminal sentencing, that is only interesting for about a half hour, right? Pretty soon you start mm -hmm. saying, well, let's look at measure 713 and let's see what it actually does, right? And these mm -hmm. people say it will save us so much money, the other people say it won't, and there's there's a study that supports their claim. Hey, did that first side have any, they didn't have any evidence? Oh, that's interesting, right? And on it goes, right? Um, that, that when you have four days to study something, you can really get to the heart of it. And you wind up saying things about it that aren't so clearly ideological. You say things mm -hmm. like, hey, this mandatory minimum sentencing law has some clearly unintended consequences. It, it's, it would put a 20-year sentence, for instance, on a 17-year-old sending two explicit pictures of themselves to a 15-year-old at their same high school, 20 years. Even the proponents acknowledge, oh, that wasn't what they meant, but they can't deny that that's what the law says, right? And you mm -hmm. keep running into these problems with your legislation or sometimes uh, virtues of it that withstand that level of scrutiny. So that deliberation gets past ideology by, by the sheer force of, of the details. But then when it gets to the voters, something different happens. The voters didn't get to deliberate for four days. They're seeing one page in the voter's guide. But the difference is it stands between two other kinds of information which aren't as helpful. On the one hand, the state of Oregon tells them in very technical language what they're voting on and out of a concern for neutrality, not super helpful information. And then on the other hand, there's partisan messages which are very easy to read. They're written at about a seventh grade reading level, um, but they're incredibly biased, right? One way you don't know, you can trust right in the middle, written at about quantitatively, about a high school or one year of college reading level, kind of right between, is this mm -hmm. statement that tells you some very straightforward information about the measure. It tells you what are probably the strongest arguments for and against and leaves it to you to decide. Now, what we found is that uh, when we do knowledge tests on voters after exposing them to this, uh, the knowledge gains cut against ideological bias. So Roger, if, if you're a liberal, there are certain things you want to believe that you have an understanding of the world and there might be some uncomfortable facts or what Gore called right inconvenient truths. Right. Well, those are actually the things you're most likely to learn when the citizens initiative review statement tells them to you and vice versa for conservative. So the irony is that, well, it's not an irony, it's lovely, is that it actually kind of corrects for our grossest ideological distortions of the empirical record, 
because those are the places where we have the most to learn and we're willing to believe by degrees a statement written really just by our fellow citizens who don't have a dog in the fight. Sorry, dogs. <laughs> Tough metaphor. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's very it's very rich, but it's so very specific, this one this one place. But you seem to find in it a model and the idea is perhaps, you know, to infuse more of uh, this this kind of interaction into everyday life. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a strong believer in research that has a, a, a clear focus, but broad relevance. And so, yeah, committing to study this process in Oregon for, for a decade might seem like a big investment in something that even honestly, a, a fair number of people in Oregon, they don't even know it exists, right? right. But the fact is, it is such a, a distinctive innovation. And it's one of the few cases where this kind of deliberative body has an actual legal authority. Nobody else gets to tell them what goes on that page, right? And that power is used so responsibly um, that to be able to document that and then put it in the larger context of democratic reform, it really does let people say, huh, these are the same people, these Oregon voters, these are the same people that like occupy a, a federal uh, wildlife building, if you remember a few years ago, right? I mean, there's craziness in Oregon. Nice. Um, the legislature that established this law was literally 50-50 at the time. I mean, they had a power sharing agreement, right? So Oregon actually has a lot of uh, blue and red conflict. And yet... Mm -hmm. Look at Portland. Yeah, and, and yet deliberation... Uh, it has kind of a universal appeal. People want to want to actually understand things and they are capable of empathy. As we saw a few years later when there was a ballot measure on establishing private casinos, really the argument that carried the day from a Native American uh, attorney was, yeah, okay, so maybe the economics of this aren't so clear, but um, you know, we've kind of had a bad couple centuries, uh, the native people of the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. and these casinos are lucrative what do you say, people? Come on. <laughs> um, and I, you can really read that in the statement, right? That it's, you know, let's have some empathy here, right? A very huh. disadvantaged community is greatly advantaged by the status quo. It's not so clear that changing the law, um, you know, won't really undo that. So let's just leave mm. it alone. And mm. then the, the private casino campaign basically abandoned ship after the Citizens Initiative Review. That After that result was made official, um, they just gave up. They just thought, well, we can't beat that. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that sort of appeal, it sounds like, is a, a one that you wouldn't have heard that this indigenous community would not voice in itself or even its, even its advocates would do so. Where else was that going to get that argument to get advanced? Right. What's it's neat is we, we talk about this guy, Jason, that was their, their lead advocate in some detail because he was up against, you can imagine the private casinos had quite an army uh, on the mm -hmm. other side at this you know five-day process. And he was not so sure that this was going to be a good thing, but he figured, well, we have to represent ourselves, right? I can represent ourselves. I can make our arguments to this body and see what happens. And by the end of the process, the other side was was just in flames. I mean, they were they were trying to do everything they could to delay the process. They were throwing up legal objections. They were throwing everything they could at it. And it's just this one guy on the other side is like, I think I won. <laughs> and, and, you know, he had the better argument. He had the better argument. It raises the question of how much 
of the political communication that we uh, are relying on of the national level is done in bad faith, you know, <laughs> and, and what does it mean from a communication standpoint that this is our, that this is our dialogue? There's been so much corrosion, it seems to me, of political language in these last four years. Can we deliberate our way out of this mess? Well, and you could be referring to any number of messes that are real serious, often global, right? Whether it's global warming, a global pandemic, global economic difficulties. And I have for years worried that not China, but Singapore is actually the greatest threat to democracy because they're kind of sort of democratic. That is, they're very technocratic, meritocratic, autocratic, sure, but they're super efficient, right? They're a city state, uh -huh. cheating, granted. Um, but when you compare them to China, China makes some noise about this. And people have made this argument that China is efficient. Well, China's kind of kind of heavy authoritarian. No, Singapore, I think, is a greater threat to, to a country that might be thinking, well, do I really want that American democracy? Because they don't seem to be able to competently govern themselves. <laughs> and in the context of COVID, I'm actually hoping to be able to go to New Zealand this summer because, hmm. among other reasons, New Zealand crushed it. Right. You know that they, as we're doing this, they literally have no active COVID cases other than yeah. those that are, of course, in quarantine. Because if you come to visit New, New Zealand, you're in a hotel for two weeks. And yeah, some of the people in those hotels have COVID. They're never going to get into the community and, you know, in that condition. But um, they had to make some very tough decisions. They went into an extreme lockdown in New Zealand early on. And the, the approval of the government is on the order of 80%, way above the European countries, let alone the US. And so there's a fascinating question there. Again, it's oh, a yeah. small nation, but That's boy, New, talk about secret sauce, right? New Zealand has a combination of competent government, but also a public that on balance is willing to you know, trust the government. Now, that's not to say there haven't been protests. There, there have been concerns about civil liberties and people have had protests, but they still pulled it off. I mean, right now, as we're doing this interview, you and I are not wearing masks because we're in our separate, you know, living quarters. Um, in New Zealand, nobody wears a mask. Why would they? There's no COVID. Mm. That's, that's not <laughs> fake news. That, that's literally the case. Now, if there is a case, the consequences are dire, right? They're going to lock it down until everyone's contact traced, no questions about it. And that's solved. Right. Can you, you know, I, I see the look on your face. It's like, yeah, that wouldn't happen in this country. Oh, People don't even trust the contact tracers, just for starters. I'm so glad to hear that, uh, you know, you're angling toward working on this, because as you described it, it certainly does sound like a really rich, uh, you know, case about what political communication can be, how it can work properly. Well, I think I think colleagues in New Zealand will be providing the answers. I, all, all I hope to be able to bring to it. And this is some of the some of what I do with research at this stage in my career is I bring to it a bunch of concepts and theories and knowledge and hopefully work with people who are smart and know what they're talking about. And I help frame it a bit. So I do suspect that part of what's going on in New Zealand is deliberative, right? There has mm -hmm. to be some way in which the government is able to give reasons for its actions mm -hmm. that the public finds persuasive. So all the way back to when you talked about humanism, institutions, norms, traditions in an interesting and complex multicultural society in New Zealand seem to have the right mix of ingredients 
for a government that needs to take drastic action to have the trust of its public that, yeah, okay, go for it. Let's, let's crush this thing. We'll do it. We can do it. Right. And ah, doesn't, doesn't that sound lovely? (laughs) Aotearoa, New Zealand. I've always heard it called by, by my closest Kiwi friend. So, you know, if somehow have been able, at least on some level in some idioms to, to sort of handle the multicultural question. Absolutely. And some of my Australian colleagues will tell you that New Zealand has, uh, has led the way on that issue in terms of Aboriginal culture and, and the integration into the political system. So many places we can go. What is your digital democracy initiative? And several questions about social media and the media environment that we're in now, the, the, the threat of, of usage of data, you know, surveillance, capitalism, and how it all can be turned democratic. So a lot of that obviously is outside my wheelhouse, outside my expertise. But the weird little thing I bring to it requires me to bring in one more strange part of my personality, which is I've always loved games. I've always loved games. When I was a little kid, I would make games, sort of Monopoly style games, and my mom would laminate them and encourage me in various ways. My mom uh, at one point said, you can play computer games all you want as long as you write them. Um, And so I wrote this horrible version of... um, what was the one where the little missiles are missile command? I think it was called. Um, it was just awful. But a friend of mine and I, we played that thing endlessly on, you know, a little what was Commodore 64 or something. So, so games and game design got got bore into me. And uh, then I had the serendipity after playing a, a mobile game, a little Marvel themed game for months. What fascinated me about it was I was playing the game, but to play the game competently, I had to be part of an alliance of people, total strangers playing the game together. And fascinating how we could respond to incentives and how we could motivate each other, right? It often required a certain level of effort from everyone to achieve things. Well, as long as we were motivated, we would do things we wouldn't have otherwise have done. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. What if, uh, and I thought about some other projects I'd been associated with. What if your your success in a prediction market, these are these places where you try to predict what's going to happen in the world and you get points for being right. What if your success in a prediction market brought, you know, sort of rewards into your alliance, but everything was kind of, was really political? Well, it turns out there's tons of research on these prediction markets and they can absolutely crush ideological bias if the incentives are strong enough. A right-wing think tank will give you a pretty accurate prediction about the Middle East if there's like a million dollars on the line. After all, yeah. this gets back to your, your question. Maybe, maybe a lot of the rhetoric is disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Some people say, and this debate's going on right now with Ted Cruz, well, maybe they're actually quite stupid. Maybe it's mm-hmm. not that they're evil geniuses. Maybe they're just evil and dumb. The prediction market uh, research suggests that at least when it comes to these ideological kind of think tanks and things, oh, they're quite smart. They are being disingenuous, as you say, when they tell you that something's going to happen, when in fact, if the incentives are there for them not to, to misrepresent it, they, they have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen, right? So my idea was interesting. You can probably combine all kinds of different interfaces online that create all sorts of incentives in the same way that, you know, how you behave in an Uber is related to how you get evaluated as a driver and a passenger. There are all kinds of interesting ways you might be motivated to deliberate 
in some of these online interactions. Mm -hmm. If let's say, for instance, the other people in the group were going to evaluate you based on how well you responded to disagreement, whether you introduced new ideas into the discussion. Maybe the more diverse the group you're in, the more is at stake in terms of the little points you could get, right? And I, the word gamification rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but I kind of <laughs> dig it because if you, really, if you really are thinking in terms of game design and game principles, mm -hmm. um, it's really just about human behavior and motivation. And it's not manipulative as long as everything's just laid out on the table. This is how the game works. We understand that if we play the game this way, we're all going to be better off. So go to it. That's what this democracy machine stuff is about. And it's partly so enjoyable because you can be really creative about the incentives and come up with things that, you know, haven't really been implemented in games yet. But it, when the game is kind of democracy itself, you would start to think about, oh, that would be an interesting way to, to play that. These, these citizen pieces, these concise and unbiased presentations of issues and arguments on these ballot propositions have been able to reach voters, make them feel more informed and impact their voting behavior. I, I wonder, you know, can we use this uh, this formula on a wider scale and use it to target the disinformation and the, the you know, fervent belief in things that are not true that we're seeing these days? I also worry about just the sheer scale of misinformation, uh, and there's no better representative of it than QAnon. People really went down the rabbit hole on this thing. And you might remember uh, when someone went to a pizza restaurant and uh, there could have been could have been a loss of life there, right? Fully armed, ready to intervene, right? We thought, well, that's as bad as that gets. Well, <laughs> it gets a lot worse, it turns out. Yeah. Um, but there's great research on QAnon, which makes the point I'm making about the democracy machine. It works because it's a compelling game. Mm -hmm. QAnon is actually a, a mm -hmm. complex live action role-playing game. You are involved in this interesting story. It's like one of these murder mysteries that's unfolding. You keep getting clues, right? We're gonna hear something new from Q. And there are people in quasi puppeteer roles, but it's complicated because it's kind of a distributed game. Even the people sending you the cue signals and so on aren't so clearly coordinated. We'll learn more about that in time. But you can probably guess where I'm headed, which is if you want to reach those folks, give them a better game. Give them a better game. Give them a way of mattering, of being a part of the story, a part of the solution that has actual tangible results in their community. Draw them in. Give them that kind of feedback, that excitement. Um, let them take risks. But again, you need to structure a different kind of social environment to, to let a game like that thrive. Um, but without that, uh, QAnon is incredibly successful, um, partly because of what it offers. And so that's how I would counterpunch is I would try to offer an alternative. I don't think you can make it go away. You can try to bury it, but that just becomes a more exciting part of its narrative. Give them something else that's better. We need the better game to be a democratic one. And that is where it seems like we're really sort of beating against the tide of the culture. You know, we have this love affair with, with outlaws and rogues, you know, <laughs> these lone men and Sarah Palin women whose ethic is basically right on the line or crossing the line into being above the law, you know, less, uh, more Thomas Hobbes, less John Locke. So we have to try to make rule of law and society 
the more attractive option. Those are things people want. I, people want a, a democracy. They want community. They want engagement. They are capable of empathy. And you can't find someone who is only individualistic, who is only self-interested, who is only authoritarian. We have these contradictory tendencies and appetites. You and I do. And we know that our best selves don't always get drawn out. Sometimes we draw right. out our worst right. self, right. right? But if the incentives so, matter. That's what I keep going back to. It is There's no getting around the fact that other than Australia, we are the most individualistic country in the world. Mm -hmm. Right? They're number one, we're number two. Deal mm -hmm. with it. But we also have strong community traditions. You know, the town hall is a real thing. The town meeting is a real thing, right? Family is a real thing. Local charities. So again, it's about drawing out the right mix of these things. I remember when we started this story, it was about how I have these adversarial traditions in my family and these collectivist kind of consensus traditions. That's what works is you, you mix these things together. We don't want to be strictly collectivist. We don't want to be strictly individualistic. So it's about mixing those things up, as you said, with incentives and drawing out these values, which in the right context are both important, both essential to humanism or democracy. Um, and that's, that's the game we're playing, Roger, is we're trying to contribute to that kind of improvement, the improvement of the society and the way it functions. That's why the show exists. That's why this conversation is happening. And hopefully people listening to the show will do better than you and I, because we're just a couple bums. Um, it's going to take a lot of people to figure these things out. We have the sort of gamification of communication, it seems, in social media and, you know, its own ridiculous incentive structure around dopamine basically, or as your friend said, attention, can it be either danced around or somehow exploited and used for democratic purposes? Facebook is a corporation and they're trying to make money. Their whole model is built on making money. So they're using mm -hmm. these same ideas, these same principles, and they don't care about you at all other than you as a provider of revenue, you know, directly mm -hmm. and indirectly. They care most about your eyeballs, your attention, right? Um, right. You're, so, you're no longer the uh, the the audience. You're actually the, the commodity itself. You know, right. So a, a colleague, Todd Davies at Stanford, has had an idea he's been kicking the tires on for a while of a corporation for public software. So the Corporation for Public Broadcasting played a really important role in helping to, to really develop public radio and public television, which were kind of a mess um, all over the country, disconnected, discombobulated. And now, I mean, I grant their viewership is obviously not going to rival the most uh, successful commercial networks, but it's really quite an accomplishment what they've done. Um, why couldn't we have something like this for software that actually is creating public interest software or not necessarily even creating it, but just subsidizing it, licensing it and, and sustaining it and so on. So that these tools for, for instance, how you interact with your local government don't require your local government to buy some piece of software from Nation Builder or something that they have no control over and they have to pay a license for every year. What if it was created in the public interest funded by the Corporation for Public Software. And for that matter, you could actually live in any number of cities across the US. And if they're smart, they're all gonna be running the same software modified to their own particular interests and needs, sure. But it would do for online engagement what Robert's Rules of Order 
uh, did for public meetings, which was actually standardize them in some ways, create a common architecture for democracy, whether or not you like Robert's rules, it actually did lay out some pretty democratic principles for process. Well, why can't we do that for software? Why can't we have a way for you to contact your city councilor that is going to be functionally pretty equivalent, uh, even if you're moving across the country, um, and impactful because of the way it's designed? There are the the wikis. There is open source software, so this this culture exists. You're speaking about just making its incentives more public, more deliberate, and sustaining it. So when you start to describe, say, open source software and so on, with a few really remarkable exceptions, they tend to come and go. Software mm -hmm. that's funded by foundations to the tune of millions of dollars even comes and goes. There's nothing to sustain it. Foundations are interested mm -hmm. in creating something new. That's great. Coders are interested in creating something new. That's great. But who's there to fix it? When, you know, the JavaScript changes, when the browser changes, um, when our needs change, when the way we communicate changes, right? All these things, this code base has to be maintained and improved continuously. Now imagine if this Corporation for Public Software, unlike the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, was itself actually more democratically structured. Right, that you and I have a chance to have a voice. Now here comes in last year's book, A Legislature by Lot, where there's sometimes uh, where we should consider randomly selecting representatives instead of electing them. And I could see this Corporation for Public Software having layers of representation randomly drawn from the public at large and from its user base to ensure a broad representation. Um, and those voices could hopefully trickle up into um, a centralized decision-making body that would then, you know, put questions back out to the user base and so on. So you could really have a democratic entity governing this democratic purpose. How does this work? Who would be randomly, randomly suggested to, I mean, or conscripted somehow into what kind of, what kind of uh, political task? Well, in the context of the Corporation for Public Software, what we're thinking about is some kind of a geographically dispersed quasi-legislative body that is randomly selected among those people who have had, say, a minimum level of engagement with the software. You might even want to populate that body with just the broader public, so you're including people who haven't seen fit to use the software. Maybe they have needs and interests that it's not addressing, right? The point is to diversify the voices that are then represented in that body, partly through random selection. Believe it or not, there, aside from the jury system, which is an obvious example of quasi-random selection, there's examples that exist already in the US that, again, people don't even know about. The California Redistricting Commission, which draws the district boundaries there in a completely uninteresting and boring way, uh, was created by a ballot measure that said, we'll have this commission. You have to volunteer for it, so it's not purely random. But once the political parties get to kind of filter it a little bit, knock out someone who they, you know, Roger says he belongs to this party, but I don't, I know him. That's a lie, right? So they wind up with Democrats, Republicans, and independents that are bona fide. Then they randomly select the members of that commission. And it does a great job and doesn't really represent any particular partisan agenda. Now, Colorado and Michigan passed laws in 2018 to say, yeah, you know what? That looks as reasonable as anything. Sure. Well, we're going to do a quasi-random redistricting commission too. Why not? Um, so this idea of random selection becomes the fancy word sortition when the random selection actually puts you in an office. Uh, 
it's sort of like election, but instead it's sortition. Um, and it can mm -hmm. be used in all kinds of different ways. So these are just a few examples, but it's being used as, as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of international innovation. The Irish process we talked about, that was sortition, where people were randomly selected and put on their constitutional convention. Iceland is considering doing something like this for constitutional revision. Uh, Mongolia uses a version of this called a deliberative poll, where a random sample of the public gets to weigh in on constitutional amendment questions. If there's kind of a, a critical threshold of disagreement in the legislature, then it gets kicked off to the citizen body. So there's all kinds of ways of using random selection. And, you know, people have concerns about it, right? These aren't, you know, experienced politicians and so on. But actually, the concerns sometimes are directly related to its advantages. These aren't seasoned politicians, right? They're just everyday people from all walks of life. Usually they're paid. So even if you're economically disadvantaged, there's no difficulty with being a part of the sortition body. And that's been the experience in Oregon too, is that uh, you know, it's actually a great opportunity for really anyone. Well, it's hard at first blush to think of random sort of conscription of citizens into public duties is necessarily a good thing in its own right, but it makes sense that it would be an educative thing there's even a whole a whole line of argument about uh, transforming student government. Because think about student government and the, oh, the ridiculous elections for student government, whether we're talking about high school or college, right? Mm -hmm. It's really kind of a resume builder for the last person you need to be in student government. Um, and what if it, we viewed it instead as actually a rich civic educational opportunity that ought to be distributed evenly? particularly to students who wouldn't run for office, right? Imagine what kind of representation you might get if your student government actually represented your students. So that idea is getting circulated a bit. There's even been talk about it here at Penn State. We'll see what comes of it. Um, but I'm participating later this month in a discussion at Indiana University where it apparently has a little more traction. I wonder what opportunities along this type, but maybe a little broader in scope, we might have, you know, to sort of rebuild confidence in, in, in public goods, in some of these, these basic building blocks of making the public sphere stronger and more robust? I wish I had a better national answer. That's where I, I do lean on my colleagues to think about how do we, how do we engage with this problem of the incredible affective polarization, the, the hatred between the two sides in our political debate, and really, honestly, the asymmetrical misinformation. There really is a difference in where the misinformation is coming from, from the left from the, versus the right in the US right now. Uh, my research has tended to focus more on solutions that are targeted, whether we're talking about a jury, right? which is usually something that's a function of a county or a state, uh, or we're talking about an election reform in the context of a state election. A colleague of mine in Wisconsin is a, a political organizer that's had great success with what's called deep canvassing, which is a, a way of addressing that at a, at a smaller scale. But the point there is, you know, listen to people. Don't, don't just send them flyers and knock on their, just listen to them. Well, how do you scale that up, right? So mm -hmm. the scaling up, is where I turn to the digital environment. And that's where I think you may be able to come up with some solutions that are implemented at the local and state level, but wind up having national consequences because they, they scale at no cost. That's my aspiration. But as you, as you can sense, Roger, that's, that's a long-term aspiration. It's not a great fix for the problem we're facing right now. 
it may be too big to speak of them. We do have one little help from the the president and and the circumstances of his election has sort of recovered interest in things like decency or language of that type. A thin read, but one on which it seems like we need to build. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Campaign rhetoric is never going to be particularly restorative because it's just about winning elections at the end of the day. If it's not, you're going to lose that election. Uh, either that or you're an incumbent who's untouchable. You will hear some beautiful rhetoric from people who have no functional opponent. Um, but <laughs> at the national level, obviously, we're, we're closely divided. And so it that's not where the solution is going to come from. It's going to have to come from what happens between elections. And a lot of people are doing a lot of good work. I hope that that can, can ultimately scale up in a way that has real national impact. In the meantime, you know, people who have listened to this, uh, uh, I really do say, look as close to you as you can. Don't try to solve the problems in DC necessarily. Uh, think about who you know, who's in your family, who's in your social network, who you really could stand to listen to. Maybe they need to be heard, right? Um, maybe there's something you can do to improve that relationship. Maybe there's a local problem you can address. A colleague mm -hmm. of mine here at Penn State is considering putting all her eggs in, in the nature basket, which is to say, you know what, especially during COVID, people are appreciating more and more how we have to do things like keep our rivers healthy. Well, that's a pretty good bipartisan issue. It requires some of the same kinds of actions that we talk about in different policy contexts, but let's talk about rivers for a while and see if that doesn't get us back to a place where we can have conversations about other things that need to change that are historically more partisan, but having built some trust by working together on things that we both care about for different reasons, maybe we can do some more good over there. That's very well framed. Yeah. Oh, wow. So uh, this... This long and and winding uh, that, uh, career in the academy, uh, all of these fascinating and highly detailed and sometimes very, uh, you know, very small but deep uh, engagements, uh, and this lifelong interest in games. And I'm wondering whether there's a sort of gamification of the research space in your head, you know. Uh, that helped you sort of explode into writing fiction. Dungeon Party is the, the less obvious of the two. It's it's about gaming culture uh, and about people who play games like Dungeons and Dragons. And I absolutely am thinking about how important these games are to people and the lessons they learn playing them. And role-playing games aren't just a way to lose yourself in fantasy. They're also ways to become better at establishing relationships. They're ways of testing your courage Right? What are you willing to sacrifice to de develop your ethics, um, your knowledge of other cultures? It's fascinating how much people can grow playing these games. And, and Dungeon Party is about the transformative power of those games. It doesn't always turn out for the better. There has to be conflict. After all, it's a novel. Uh, but um, it was a real chance to play with those ideas. And I do think if we do gamify politics, it, it can't just be, you know, kind of candy crush of participatory budgeting or something. It has to have some kind of narrative arc. The best video games have a compelling story and you need to be a hero in that story. Uh -huh. So writing Dungeon Party gave me a chance to think about these kind of heroic narratives and, and how they operate on people. 
Gray Matters is very different. That's a sci-fi tale, near future. That's much more right up my alley. It's very much about political communication. The weird twist in there is it's about a, a Silicon Valley style company in Seattle that uh, comes up with a kind of tech fix for Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a personal issue because we've had so much Alzheimer's in my family. Mm -hmm. But what that lets you explore is, well, okay, I get why the technology could help, you know, with reminders and things to help you kind of stay cognitively sharp. But sometimes do we overreach with technology? I hadn't ever thought of it until this interview, Roger, but maybe Gray Matters is also kind of keeping me in check. Right. When you read about mm -hmm. the character who has the PhD and does big data analytics and all this social science, there's a kind of cautionary tale working in there that maybe I needed to write for myself um, because tech, right? Tech can go very awry. And when you look at Elon Musk and the Neuralink Corporation and you know, we'll all be better off if we can just slide a little chip behind our ear, that's in gray matters. I mean, I wrote that before he came along and when a friend pointed it out, I was like, uh, this was supposed to be near future, not right now, science fiction. So I, I do worry about the pace of technological change and whether we're really thinking through the potential unintended consequences. That's part of what that novel's about. While also uh, uh, getting somewhat substantively into the world of dementia, right? And, and its mentalities. Right. The, the weirdest thing about that is there's a preface in that book written by an Australian colleague that says, you should read this book because a lot of this stuff is already starting to happen. And oh, great. We, need to, we need to figure <laughs> out what's left that we can stop because most of it wasn't good. Um, right. So this, I, all I can tell you is I read this before these things happened. One of the weird things in the novel is there was a comic character I made. Actually, the novel in some ways was inspired by Sarah Palin because I thought, what if there was a Sarah Palin on the left? someone who really seemed not all that sharp and mm -hmm. was saying kind of incredible, unbelievable things. But you know what? She's our candidate, so we support her. Mm -hmm. So there's this guy, Mahatma Golden, on the left, is the mayor of Venice, California, who wrote a book about our future selves called Be There Then. Um, <laughs> and he argues that dementia isn't dementia. Alzheimer's doesn't exist. These are our seniors connecting to future generations, and we're not listening. Oh, there right? you go. And it, but it becomes this very pragmatic <laughs> message about orienting ourselves towards the future. Don't you want to be that way, Roger? Don't you want to care about what's coming? Right. I and, see. and, see. The, and he's a complete in the same health. way that infants are corresponding with their ancestors. You know? Well, so now we have, a, have had, and by the time people are watching this probably won't have a president who is absolutely denying one of the strongest medical facts staring us right in the face. And I wrote about it as comedy. I thought it was a little bit much, but you know, I thought it was funny and I needed it. This is, Trump more than once gave me, uh, you know, a solved pro plot problems. Because mm, yeah, mm. that could happen, right? There really could be someone like that. Tell me about how you got moved towards committing to actually write and finish this fiction. Had you written fiction before? Was it brand new? Were you giving yourself permission? How did it work? Uh, gave myself permission and learned from the ground up uh, and worked with professional editors. So I, I wrote Dungeon Party first, and then about a year later, I wrote the other. I actually did NaNoWriMo, but I made it into NaNoEdmo pretty quickly because once I drafted them, National Novel Writers Month became National Editors Month, right? But working with professional editors made all the difference because increasingly the publishers, they don't want to edit your book. 
they want to just publish it. They're done editing. They, they don't have time for it. They're not even hiring staff for it. And this is unfortunately is true to a degree academic publishers won't want to admit, but it's increasingly true. So I worked with one editor after another, kept revising, kept revising. And what I'll give myself credit for is I had a very open mind to the idea that, yeah, no, every draft is going to improve. And I wouldn't be handing it to someone if I didn't want their feedback. So there are really interesting ways both of the books evolved. It, it, I would say for the most part, they tightened. They tightened and tightened and tightened. Characters fell away, subplots fell away, and we kept getting back to the core of the story. And I am so grateful for that help. It greatly improved my writing and Hope for Democracy. I worked with a professional editor too, with Katie, and we tried to write it as narrative nonfiction. There's not a single footnote, right? At the back of the book, there are essays for each chapter about the sources, but they're, they're full paragraphs. And we, we did a completely different way to sourcing, right? Because we wanted this to just be accessible, 100% accessible, and tell the stories of the people involved. Well, I don't think if I'd written the fiction, I could have written hope for democracy. So I think there's been a long-term payoff for me. Um, I hope the novels do well and Dungeon Party is doing very well uh, because it has a built-in audience of all these gamers mm -hmm. who have never had a novelization of their lives oh, wow. um, quite like that. So mm -hmm. that's exciting. That's wonderful. Man, what an overachiever. <laughs> a beautiful sentiment eloquently put. Wonderful way to to end, I'm so glad that the spirit has moved you to speak with me on these topics, Professor Gaston. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me and thanks for having your show. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for sticking with it till the end. Please do like and subscribe and, and click the uh, proverbial or empirical bell, whichever you prefer.